There are interesting messages that the Bible has about uh, money. The passage we're going to look at today has one of those scenes where Jesus gets very, very upset and even uses the word angry over some of the things that were being bought and sold in the temple. So one of our questions is, why was he so angry? We're going to look at that. At the same time, Jesus also taught that he rewards generosity. So here in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So as we think about giving and generosity, Jesus uses agricultural terms that have to do with the harvest in explaining that there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one relationship in how this happens, but God nonetheless rewards generosity. So let me invite you to uh, uh, participate in giving to North River. We've tried to make this simple by providing a number of different ways that you can do that. Uh, there are a handful of ways you can give. You can do that online. If, if you're online today, you can uh, click on a, on a button and it'll, it'll lead you to a portal for doing that. Or if you're on our website, there's a give button on the top. Uh, you can give through a North River app that you can download onto your phone. It's called My North River. Uh, you can mail in a, a check. Uh, or, or on the way out, there will be people with some buckets. You can simply place cash or a check in that. Or you can set up some kind of a recurring option through your online banking. But let me thank you for being generous and for supporting the work that we do here at North River. It matters, and uh, you have kept us going in so many ways during all the disruptions that we've had over the last 18 to 20 months, and we very much appreciate all that. Let me stop and pray before we move closer into our teaching time for today. Father God, thank you for allowing us to gather here today, whether we are in the house or whether we are online today, and we ask that you will continue to allow us to understand more and more about the heart of Jesus and who Jesus wants us to be and what he wants us to do today. We pray for wisdom and knowing how we process the messages of the Bible in ways that make sense in the world and the times that we live in without distorting what he was trying to say to us or without washing it away or, or watering it down. We pray that you'd also give us hearts to live the way that Jesus wants us to live, full of life, enjoying this world as a world that you've provided, uh, being wise to the, the messages that are all around us that would pull us this way or that way. Give us the ability to not only seek the heart of Jesus in times like today when we worship, but also to hear your voice and to sense where you are directing us in life. Lord, I believe that every person who is here and who is watching matters to you. And so I pray that your spirit will break through into our minds and our hearts so that there will be moments where we surrender to you, where we surrender our thinking, where we surrender our planning, where we surrender our future and our wills, and where the, the human will continually opens up to your ways, and we put your ways first. Lord, we thank you for being the God who forgives our sins when we confess them to you and when we acknowledge that we need your grace. Thank you for being the God who transforms our lives, and as we lean into you, as we pray to you, as we, as we contemplate uh, the direction that you are leading in us, you make our lives more like Jesus. We pray that you will transform us, that you will break the powers of the old habits that 
hold us back in this life or that control us or that we become addicted to, and that you will replace them with healthy habits that lead to life and to blessing and to grace. Thank you for those who are around us. We pray for each one in our families and those friends that we've already said hello to this morning. We ask that you will continue to draw us into fellowship where we become a rich and integrated community and a community that is full of love and grace toward each other and a desire to honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our topic is Angry Jesus, and to get you moving in that direction of thinking about what made Jesus angry, I'd like you to watch this short video. May God bless you with discomfort. Discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships. So that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger, anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears. Tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. May God bless you with foolishness Enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world. So that you can do what others claim cannot be done. It's an interesting thought that God may bless us with things like discomfort or with anger. A Bloomberg opinion piece has labeled the times that we live in today as the age of anger, claiming that a rise, the rise in anger that we've seen over the past few years is just getting started. A 2019 article in The Atlantic by Charles Duhigg uh, looks into the root of American rage that we seem to see expressed in so many ways. He focused on a study that was begun by a UMass professor, James Averill, who started with a questionnaire that was sent to residents in the small town of Greenfield, Mass., a town of about 18,000 people back in the late 1970s. Averill thought that the average person only has occasional experiences with anger because mature people tend to move beyond anger. 
He thought that a small town like this would give him a picture of how infrequently people experience anger, and frankly, that most people would actually throw his questionnaire out because they were bored by it. Instead, he found that it was his best-performing survey that he had, he had ever conducted in his research. People wanted to talk about their anger. Some people even sent him thank-you cards for sending this questionnaire in the mail and asking about their anger. He summarized his research in the journal American Psychologist, and he wrote an interesting finding. This is a direct quote. Anger is one of the densest forms of communication. It conveys more information more quickly than almost any other type of emotion. Isn't that fascinating to come from a scholarly standpoint? Rather than finding only negative reactions, he found that actually there, there's a whole lot that anger at certain times conveys and that it conveys more information than all the other emotions that we have. The Atlantic article notes that there are some benefits from expressing anger. Sometimes it alerts the other party that harm has been done when they might not have realized it. This can lead to dialogue, to change, resolution, and even to the ability to improve our lives. The civil rights era showed how a righteous rage can motivate large groups of people to work for change that, that was once thought to be unreachable. However, many other studies have been done since Averill's original work in 1977, finding that anger also has with it the capacity to do great harm. And the author noted that moral outrage must be closely managed or it can do more harm than good. I came across all this research while I was pondering the anger that drove Jesus to overturn the tables of the money changers and the carts of people who were selling doves and animals for the sacrifices in the temple courts in Jerusalem. And I began to wonder, what can we learn from the anger of Jesus? Now, you may be aware that the Bible doesn't say that anger in itself is wrong. Actually, the, the, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, in your anger do not sin. So it's how we express anger that matters. Anger itself is just an emotion. It simply is. And we will all experience anger at, what time, at one time or another. How do we do that and why do we express anger? And this morning we're going to look at what made Jesus angry. So this morning our topic is Angry Jesus. This is part four of our Rediscovering Jesus series. And it leads, to, uh, leads us to focus on an aspect of Jesus' life and ministry that is often ignored, often avoided, and often misused when it is taught about. So let me welcome you this morning to North River Church, and let me thank you uh, for joining us in this look at the controversies that surrounded Jesus and the people of his day who often tried to fit him into their own little man-made boxes where Jesus was all figured out and neatly contained. In this era, we have become a hybrid congregation, so let me welcome all of you who are in the room here in Pembroke today, and let me also welcome those who are watching online from home or traveling or wherever you may find yourself. We are in multiple locations today, but we have one thing in common. We want to understand who Jesus was based on the earliest records of his life. And those records are the books known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels of the New Testament. Both longtime Christians and those who are kicking the tires trying to figure out if there's reason to believe want to understand the Jesus who still changes the lives of people today. Underneath all things, that's what we actually hope for, is that Jesus will bring change into our lives, the kind of change that is attractive and healthy and wholesome and better. 
My hope is that you will send me questions, that you will dig deeper, that you will join a study group, and that you will continue to grow in faith. We simply don't want people just to come here and not be changed, but we believe in a God who is daily changing our lives. The question this morning is, what can we learn from angry Jesus? And here's the main idea that I want to get across. So if you're short on sleep and you want to tune out, just get this one sentence down and think about it, and then you can fall asleep. And, but I think the rest does have some uh, great measure for you. Jesus' greatest anger was reserved for those who put obstacles in the way of the people who are farthest from God. Jesus' greatest anger was toward those people who put up man-made obstacles that get in the pathway that prevent those who are farthest from God coming closer to Him. The first thing that we see is that the temple was given to Israel as a mission to the world. Many people would be surprised at hearing this. But look at the way this gospel passage begins, Mark 11, verses 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You may be aware that this scene happens as Jesus was beginning Holy Week. The day before, Jesus had come through in what we call the triumphal entry, and we celebrate as Palm Sunday, and he'd been received to great, uh, with great applause and with people uh, throwing down palm branches and, and taking off their cloaks and putting them on the pathway for him. This was a kind of royal reception that was due for a king. The very next day, Jesus comes into the temple courts, and this particular scene plays out. There are two location markers that provide keys to understanding this event. The first is where it says in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem. This is an important detail, for Mark has described in his gospel how Jesus and his disciples steadily were making their way toward Jerusalem. Jesus was headed toward his final Passover celebration and toward the cross that would happen on that weekend, which was a central feature of his mission. He knew that this week embodied the focal point of his redemptive ministry to the entire world and to all of world history. The second phrase is where it says in both verse 15 and 16, it mentions the temple courts. It is hard for us today to imagine how central the temple was to life in Jerusalem in the days when Jesus walked the earth. The temple represented God's willingness to dwell in the midst of his people. But it was more than that. The temple was the place where uh, sins were removed as, as God received sacrifices that were temporary and, and temporary sacrifices in order to pay for the sins of the people as a substitute. The temple was unlike every other religious gathering place in the world at that time and even today. And that is because it, inc it included courts for not only priests at the, at the center of the action for men and for women, but also an outer court that was for all the nations. Sometimes it was called the court of the Gentiles or the court of all nations. Properly understood and properly functioning, Jerusalem's temple at that time, 2,000 years ago, was the religious UN that offered hope of coming near to God for people from every nation and every ethnic, ethnic group around the world. And this gave Israel a mission to the world. Putting these details together, we see that Jesus had come to the pinnacle week of his entire ministry for the sake of the world. 
It was painfully obvious at the temple, the religious UN of the world was being misused in ways that broke the heart of the Son of God. So we want to understand what was it that, that captured Jesus' attention? What was it that broke Jesus' heart? So first, it's critical that we understand part of the purpose of the temple was for more than just Jewish people, the temple represented God's mission to the world simply by including these different courts and especially the court for the Gentiles or the court for the nations. Now think about how different that is from, from many other world religions. I remember a number of years ago, my brother led a mission trip to Israel and to Jordan. And when they got to Amman, Jordan, this uh, group that he was leading with a bunch of American teenagers decided they wanted to go inside a mosque. Really bad idea. You had American girls in short shorts and, and t-shirts and things like that who start making their way toward the mosque. And all of a sudden, men with Uzi machine guns popped out and got in the way and said, you can't come in here. First of all, you're not welcome here because you're not Islamic. But second of all, you're not dressed for the occasion. And my brother was in charge of the group, and he literally started calling taxis and whipping these kids into the taxis to try and get out of there as fast as they could. It was dangerous. That's the world we live in today, where you're not necessarily welcome in every religious gathering place. But think of this. In the heart of Jerusalem, there was a court for the nations, where everybody, no matter where you had come from and what your background was, was welcome to begin the process of coming near to a holy God. And that was part of God's design from the beginning. Here's the second discovery we make. Not only was the temple given to Israel as a mission to the world, something that's often lost, but Jesus gets angry when we put obstacles in the path for other people. Same verses. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling here. So now we're focused on the action of Jesus, that he was driving people away from this, set, this situation. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. We find Jesus at his angriest on this particular day. And we have to ask the question, what went wrong? Why was Jesus so angry? Now, there are some contemporary assumptions that churches and Christians make about this question today. For instance, some churches assume that the handling of money is the problem. So, the church of my youth would never allow anything to be sold in, in the church. We didn't sell books, we didn't sell small group materials or worship CDs or tapes. You couldn't buy a Bible in the church worship center if you wanted a Bible because they just didn't sell anything, feeling that all of that was somehow going to lead to offending in the same way that Jesus was offended here. All of this was seen as, as violating the church as a worship center. Was that what Jesus wanted? Was it simply about handling money that made Jesus angry? Some writers and historians conclude that the problem was actually over corrupt practices. And there is no doubt that there was corruption going on here, and it had been for some time. For instance, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus, went into great detail about which groups were getting a cut on the profits from inflated sales for these animals that were being sold in the temple. The priests, the temple workers, the chief priests, and the Sanhedrin who governed religious practices in Jerusalem, all of them got a piece of the pie. And it's believed that it went all the way to, to Pilate and on to Rome and even to Caesar who all got a piece of the profits that were being made. 
Now, why, why were the animals there in the first place? People were instructed to bring animals based on their affluence or lack of affluence. So if you were wealthy, you would bring an ox. If you were poor, the poorest offering was a pigeon. And you would offer animals that were sacrificed, and the priest would offer them in your place. So in a sense, the animal was dying to represent the sins of the people, and it would temporarily satisfy all of the obligations that were necessary for a person to be forgiven. Instead of the penalty being given to the human being, the penalty was given to an animal. But all that was pointing forward to the time when the ultimate sacrifice would come, and that's what Jesus came to offer with his own life. The priests got this idea that since many people came from long distances to the temple, they would provide animals for them. So they didn't have to cart them along if you were walking for two or three, three days' journey to Jerusalem. And they would sell them there. And then the, somehow the notion got changed that the animals that they had prepared were more worthy or more pure or better than the ones that you would have brought from home anyway. And then they started selling them at an inflated price. So here's where the corruption comes in. And there's no doubt that there was corruption involved. And so the question is, was that what made Jesus angry that day? All the corruption. Maybe. And it's possible that was a part of it. But there are two keys to unpacking what went wrong who are here in the, that are referenced here in this part of the gospel account. The first key comes from the mention of the temple courts. The inner part of the temple courts was for the priests and the sacrifices were, were taken there and would occur there. Next was the court of men and then outside of the court of men was the court of women. They were separated in, in the way that they would gather. But the farthest out section was known as the court of the nations or the court of the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people could seek the face of God there. The second key comes from Jesus' Old Testament quotations. First, Jesus says in his response, Is it not written, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations? He was quoting Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7, and there the Lord made promises that he would not exclude foreigners from the temple. This is why Jesus makes this specific comment. He is referring to something that had already been written by one of the prophets. And it was telling them that it was important to God that there was room for non-Jewish people to come in the temple so that they could approach God. And Jesus, with that quotation, is calling our attention to the fact that the outer courts, the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles, was the area that had been taken over for the buying and selling and the money exchanges in order to provide these animals so that there was no room for non-Jewish people to come and approach God. In effect, they were breaking a promise that God had made about the purpose of the temple. The second key comes from uh, Jesus' second quote, which comes from a Jeremiah 7.11, where the Lord told the religious leaders of Israel in that day that they had made the temple a den of robbers. They had done that by worshiping idols back in the time before the destruction of Jerusalem when Jeremiah was a prophet. Jesus was, in effect, telling the religious leaders of his day 2,000 years ago that their actions were just as despicable as the actions were in the days when Jeremiah was warning the people that devastation was going to come to Jerusalem, and he used the same phrase that they used, a den of robbers. 
So all of a sudden we realize that Jesus isn't just making commentary about what's going on. He's also referring back to the, the uh, warnings that had been given in the Old Testament about previous generations who had done something very similar. Here we discover that Jesus was angry because the buyers and sellers had used the court of the nations. And while they were initially trying to provide a service to help those who came from a distance, the truth was that this became a money-making scam that benefited the religious leaders and that prevented the nations, the non-Jewish people, from coming to find peace with God. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels there are a handful of occasions where there are non-Jewish people that Jesus all of a sudden focuses on? And you wonder why, if he, if he came to Israel first, why does he focus on this Roman centurion and he heals the Roman centurion's servant? And there are a handful of others like that. It's because Jesus expected that non-Jewish people would see that there was a holy God who was blessing this one nation and they would have questions about why and, and how they could be included in, in that. Jesus expected non-Jewish people to come to faith in the God who created this whole world. This use of the outer courts, the court of the nations, violated the promise that God himself had made to non-Jewish people. And it meant that Israel's leaders had, had neglected their own mission to the world that was signified by the arrangement of the temple. Jesus' greatest anger was reserved for those who put obstacles in the way of people who are farthest from God. Here's the third discovery I made in thinking about this particular passage and how it relates to us today. Our mission as a church here at North River centers on removing obstacles from the pathway of people. Look at how this works out in, in the final verse that we read, verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. In other words, the comments from Jesus in quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah and his actions in overturning the tables and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So notice the response to Jesus' clearing of the temple that day. The crowd of people in the temple courts were amazed as Jesus continued to teach. So he didn't just come in like a bombshell, turn everything over and leave. He turned everything over in order to straighten it up and then continued to teach. He wasn't running away from anybody on that day. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, at the same time, while trying to protect what they thought was the way that worship should function in the temple, right then and there started looking for ways to kill Jesus. But they couldn't do anything right then because they feared him and second, because the people surrounded Jesus, constantly being amazed at his teaching. Matthew's gospel, when it portrays this same account, offers one more detail that Mark leads out. Matthew's gospel adds that right after doing this, the people who were blind and lame came to him immediately, and he healed them. In other words, there were all kinds of people who had real problems who started rushing toward Jesus realizing that the temple wasn't going to operate according to business as usual as it had been set up by the religious leaders of that day, that Jesus was restoring it to being a place of healing and prayer and approaching God. And right then and there in the temple courts, Jesus begins to heal people, all kinds of people, throughout the rest of the day. People kept coming toward Jesus when he removed obstacles from the path. All of a sudden, the temple courts moved from a community dominated by these obstacles and instead became a community where people flowed toward the grace of God. 
This is the flow that Jesus came to establish. This is what God longs to do in every generation. And friends, I have to tell you, this is our mission as a church. When you look at North River's mission statement, it's actually very simple. Helping people who are far from God, for whatever reason, become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. We have been pursuing that for for 32 years together. And our mission is not about entertaining, but using whatever it takes in order to removing obstacles that keep people from responding to Jesus. What are those obstacles? They can be a number of things. They can be our attitudes and the way that we treat people. They can be man-made rules that conflict with the heart of Jesus. They can be holding on to styles from the past that honor tradition more than reaching new people who weren't from that tradition. They can be resisting change that makes it easier for people to understand and respond to Jesus. They can be power struggles that are really about gaining or holding on to power or control that so often are are so much of what goes on in a church setting. Jesus would be against all of this stuff because it gets in the way of people who are trying to find their way to grace. Some people struggle to understand a church like North River because you've come from somewhere else where there's a whole lot of tradition. And we're not against tradition. I would simply like to invite you to consider this. Does that tradition get in the way? And where it does, if it's not absolutely essential, our job should be to actually remove that tradition in order that people today can come as unimpeded as possible to a God who is reaching out to them and inviting them to come with open arms and to embrace Him to come and to acknowledge that there are hard parts of the message. Part of the message is we have to confront our own sin. We have to acknowledge our own sin. We have to confess it to God and that He wants to change us, not just receive us the way we are and leave us that way, but He wants to change us and make us more like Jesus. All that stuff is hard for some people to hear. But the more we remove the obstacles that are the man-made hurdles that we can sometimes put in the way of people, the more people can receive that and realize that message is given by a gracious God who wants to forgive and who does and who transforms not only our our eternal experience but our daily experience too with the peace of God that comes from resting in His arms. I've said this for many, many years. It takes an unselfish church to keep this kind of mission healthy and alive. This is one of the things I love about the people of North River through all the generations that we've been operating now. Yes, we are just as capable of playing selfish control games as anyone else, but this congregation continues to embrace this role and His mission. And we've been doing that for 32 years, and we hope to continue doing that. Jesus' greatest anger was reserved for those who put obstacles in the way of people who are farthest from God. So, here's the good news that we're learning in this series so far. The gospel is so good that there is nothing about your life that can shock or scare away Jesus. The the gospel is advancing as desperate people or people desperate for grace take hold of Jesus' offer no matter what their background. The gospel is so good that Jesus is willing to be misunderstood by standing with you and me. The gospel is so good that it's worth giving your life for it even after counting the cost. The gospel is so good that Jesus gets angry when we create obstacles in the path for people who are farthest from God. So here is what we do. 
Our deacons team meets regularly, and they meet financial and, and practical needs behind the scenes so that lack of provisions no longer become an obstacle for some people to continue hearing from God and coming closer to God. Our working hands team takes on home projects so that safety needs do not become an obstacle. Our go team uh, rallies the church to make sure that a lack of serving our neighbors does not become an obstacle for those who are watching the church in action. Our small group uh, our small groups study scripture and develop community so that lack of knowledge or fellowship are not obstacles for remaining in a part of that crew that is moving their way toward Jesus. Our Elevate high school ministry team embraces teens in order to help them navigate youth culture so that generational patterns do not become obstacles to following Jesus. Our Sunday worship and connection and teaching teams uh, try to remove every possible obstacle so, so that those who are exploring Christian faith can hear and consider the claims of Jesus. And our Sunday tech teams work to provide clear signals and images so that distance is not an obstacle and people can take this in from wherever they are. And every Sunday morning, there are people now from several different states who are joining us. Do you get the picture? North River Church is dedicated to removing obstacles that keep people from, from finding peace with God through Jesus. And we invite you into that process with us. Let's remove all the barriers that are simply man-made barriers and think through everything that we do so that nothing gets in the way of the good news of Jesus Christ getting out to people. This is who we are. And this is what we do. And I love this church for being a community of unselfish people who love to go out of their way in removing obstacles so that those who today may consider themselves so far from God that they'd be shocked that God would even love them, can come closer and closer and closer to His grace. Anybody ready to come to Jesus today? He's the one who invites us. He's the one who invites us to His throne. And if you reach out to Him, you'll find Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for allowing us the safety and the quietness to explore Scripture and to ask the questions about what Jesus meant with these Old Testament quotations and why He was so angry. And I pray that You would raise up within us even a, a righteous anger too if our traditions begin to put hurdles in the way of people who need to find the grace of God and who actually are trying to find peace with God and trying to find their way to forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would give us collectively a heart for people who are outside of the church, a heart for people who, who long to know uh, your presence and who long to know your grace. And I pray that you will make this a place where people are drawn because they find Jesus here and bec because they find a Jesus who welcomes them here and a Jesus who understands the challenges and fears and hurdles that are often in the pathway. Thank you for North River Church. Thank you for the way you have led us thus far, and we ask you to boldly lead us clearly into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.